letter from Brother Roger, the founder of the Taze movement, to his people. We didn't read the gospel, but rather retold the meaning of the story for us. We also changed the way we reference God and the Holy Spirit, God the Mother, Father, Creator, Sister Spirit. Some of us were likely very uncomfortable with those words and with that service. I know. I know it's hard because the words themselves feel sacred. But for others, it was long overdue, like manna from heaven, feeding our souls in ways we had not even anticipated. The more inclusive language for the various aspects of the Trinity was hard for some of us. But it was also particularly pow powerful for others. When I was in seminary, which is almost 30 years ago now, and I said that at 8 o'clock, I said, I know, I don't look that old, do I? And nobody laughed. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, it has been 30 years. Conversations around inclusive language were very popular, right? The, no the new revised standard version of the Bible had just come out. That was put together by a committee of scholars who returned to the source languages to retranslate the text as accurately as possible, trying not to fall into some of the traps set by our own unconscious biases and limitations of our language. They didn't reinterpret, but they did retranslate from scratch. And part of the purpose in that huge undertaking was to address some of the gendered language in previous translations. In the preface to the NRSV, as it is known, a member of the committee wrote, many in churches have become sensitive to the danger of linguistic sexism arising from the inherent bias of the English language towards the masculine gender, a bias that in the case of the Bible has often restricted or obscured the meaning of the original text. It was a big undertaking and frankly, it was groundbreaking at that time 30 years ago references to rather than talking always of a man when it was possible we talked about a person radical stuff right and references to men and women masculine oriented language was eliminated as far as it could be without changing the meaning or altering passages that reflected the patriarchal society and culture in which they were written so they had to be careful and really stay true to the meaning of the text and it was groundbreaking, and it mattered a lot. A lot of people were moved by that change, those changes. Many people I was in school with were working through their own personal demons with religion. And many of my peers struggled with the traditional language of scripture. We had a very high percentage of openly LGBTQ plus students who had felt rejected by their faith traditions we had many men and women who had been abused by fathers and brothers and uncles and priests and pastors and were exercising those demons. For many, the biblical language felt like a further barrier or another violation. Words matter. And I've been thinking a lot about the words we use. Who do they welcome and who do they shut out? And not just gendered language, but other ways our language can be a barrier. For instance, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but every Sunday I struggle with the Nicene Creed. 
right? We're trying to be here at St. John's, an open and welcoming place. Then every Sunday, we ask everyone to stand, and as we say together, we believe several times, we believe, and then continue with a lot of words and concepts that can be off-putting to people who are new to the faith. Language many of us have struggled with and probably mostly come to terms with over our years as churchgoers, but for those who are new to mainstream Christian faith, it might seem a bit much to wrap your head around. So it was in this context and my hypersensitivity to the impact of words that I began contemplating the words for this Sunday. Not so much the scripture itself, I'll get to that in a minute, but the day itself. You may not have noticed on the front of your bulletin, but today is Christ the King Sunday. The last Sunday before Advent is always Christ the King Sunday. And it occurred to me not for the first time that what an odd image that is for Jesus. To a modern ear, the language of Christ the King can sound heavy-handed, hierarchical, and deeply patriarchal. After all, the concept of a king is about as hierarchical and patriarchal as we can get. Rule by the Father. It's particularly odd for us Americans who have a foundational distaste for the concept of a monarchy. And the word king conjures images of wealth and power, privilege and oppression. Interestingly, the passage itself doesn't create or reflect this image of Christ as king. In fact, Jesus turns the whole kingly image inside out and upside down. In many ways, Jesus is disclaiming his role as king. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. Pontius Pilate was Emperor Tiberius's prefect in Judea. He was not Jewish, and he was there to represent the authority and power of the Roman Empire. It was the practice of the Roman Empire, surprisingly or not, at that time to allow people of the provinces to follow their own customs and religions. So most Roman governors accommodated Judaism. But even so, Jews in first century Jerusalem didn't have real power. Certainly not the power to condemn criminals or crucify them. Only the Romans could nail you to a cross. And Pilate was committed to affirming the power of Roman rule and was not as accepting of Jewish traditions and faith practices as some of the, the previous prefects or governors had been. And he showed very little regard for Jewish leadership. So when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? I hear a mocking in his tone. The very idea of Jews having a king in any meaningful sense must have seemed a bit ridiculous to Pilate. And Jesus certainly didn't look regal as he stood before Pilate in torn and dirty robes and worn out sandals. He'd been arrested in Gethsemane. All of his disciples had abandoned him, so he's more or less alone. And I imagine he'd been roughed up by Roman soldiers, so he was looking a little worse for wear. Are you the king of the Jews? There was also a serious side to the question a king of the Jews would have represented a challenge to Pilate's authority and to the empire. The Roman Empire responded such to such challenges with strong force. In typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't respond defensively 
or with anger? His response is brilliant, really. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. But Pilate continues to push the point. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am king. Jesus never refers to himself as a king in this passage, and this confrontation with Pilate is rich with irony and ambiguity. Pilate appears to us to have all the power, but really he has none. And Jesus appears to have no power at all, and really he has it all. Because his power and his authority do not come from this world. My kingdom is not of this world. There was nothing that Pilate could do to Jesus. John had already told us that part of Jesus' mission was to cast out the rulers of this world who have no power over him. No power. Crucifixion? Bring it on. The crucifixion simply serves to make it clear that Jesus' kingship is not of this world. The crucifixion is a critical piece of Jesus' ministry, and he wasn't afraid. Worldly kings take power from others by winning battles and flexing muscles, but Jesus neither fights nor allows his followers to fight. He does not mount a defense of himself. You say that I am king. Jesus offers an alternative to earthly kingship. I have been born and come into the world for this, to witness the truth. Jesus' testimony to the truth appears embedded throughout the Gospel of John. And in chapter 19, the manner of Jesus' death testifies to his true identity. Those who can hear or see the message of Jesus' crucifixion see a true king, not of this world. But Pilate and many others before him were not the only ones who misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingship. Even the disciples failed to understand it. Remember James and John wanting to sit beside Jesus in his kingdom so that they could have power and share in his power? And Jesus told them they didn't get it. They misunderstood who he was and what it meant to be his kind of king. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, he told them. In spite of all that, we celebrate Christ the King Sunday, intended to acknowledge Christ as a king not of this world. The problem with glorifying Christ as king is that we still, 2,000 years later, we still misunderstand. Just like Pilate and, and Jesus' disciples, we can't help but create these superhuman, triumphal images of Jesus. Many don't understand Jesus' true kingship, and others reject it outright because it doesn't fit with their image of power. So we end up getting these funny images of Christ as king with rich velvet robes and heavy gold crowns. Have you seen those paintings with that image of Christ? And because we live in this world, we're drawn to these images of power that are familiar. Kings and warriors, our human nature wants to put powerful leaders on a pedestal to venerate them. Emperors were considered to be gods. And so we turn God into an emperor, a king. The artwork and images portray Jesus as this regal character with these, again, the rich velvet robes and heavy gold crown. 
This is, of course, the image of Jesus once he's ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. It is as if his dirty robes have been transformed into velvet and his crown of thorns into gold. This incredible transformation as he ascends to heaven to be with God because heaven forbid he should show up in dusty, ragged robes to dine with God. That kingly Jesus sitting up in heaven doesn't feel authentic to me. It makes me feel like his time on earth, earth was something of a lark. And I imagine that Jesus, that Jesus having a conversation with God, garbed in his rich velvet robes, sipping on expensive brandy, and the conversation might go something like this. Wow, that was a rough assignment. I am so glad to, be, to have left the world and that mortal body behind, to be back in the bosom of my family with you where I know I'm safe. I don't know how those sad humans handle it day in and day out. The image carries with it a certain sense of superiority and ego, a ruler out of touch with his people. Once you put the velvet robe and gold crown on a person, it changes them. It doesn't seem right somehow. It doesn't ring true to who Jesus is, the Jesus that I know from Scripture. And Jesus tries very hard in John to not perpetuate this idea that he is king. But we make him that anyway with feast days like today, Christ the King Sunday, Jesus as triumphal king. Here's an interesting detail, because I like to throw these in so you can bring them up at cocktail parties. An interesting detail about Christ the King Sunday. It was actually instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925. It reminds Christians, the intent was at least, to remind Christians that their allegiance was to a spiritual ruler in heaven, as opposed to an earthly supremacy, which was the claim being made by Mussolini. This feast day was instituted for political reasons far more than spiritual ones. The Pope wanted to remind people who the true king was, and it makes sense when you understand that it is in response to the growing fascist movement in Europe. I get it. We do tend to deify our leaders. Well, we deify them and we demonize them, right? It's a primary root of monarchies. As rule is passed down from generation to generation, there's a belief that those leaders are ordained by God, and it's dangerous. But the opposite is a problem, too. Minimizing Jesus to a human scale diminishes his very being and true humanity and true godness. We end up with this confused image of Christ. It would have been so much simpler if Jesus had, simply had said to Pilate, no, I'm not the king. I came to free all people from the tyranny of oppression and help them to understand that God is not a God of hierarchies and power, but a God of love. So you can keep your backwards views on earthly domination or forging a new way forward. It's hard sometimes to understand the power that Jesus wields, the power of God's love. Jesus' kingship was never meant to be about riches and domination or triumphalism, but is the radical, all-powerful compassion and love 
of Jesus offering mercy and seeking justice for all. Jesus is a manifestation of a loving God. Words matter. And in many of the commentaries that I read in the last couple of weeks over Christ the King Sunday, there was this sense that we need to reclaim the idea of the king and the kingdom. And they suggest all sorts of ways of rethinking the concept, which is kind of what I've outlined here, right? How do we think differently about what it means to be a king? But it feels like a whole lot of mental gymnastics. And there are so many... There are so many beautiful words and images for Jesus that don't require those kinds of mental gymnastics to understand or to justify. Beautiful, lyrical, poetic images of Jesus that have nothing to do with earthly power or patriarchy. Jesus is the word. The very language and meaning that we breathe from the beginning of time, poetry itself. Jesus is the bread of life that nourishes our souls. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the lamb and Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. Jesus is love. The kingdom that Jesus promises us that we are building together now and into the future is not a place of power, domination, and injustice, but a sanctuary of compassion and grace and love. And in Jesus' world, love is an active verb, but also a way of being, and even a noun, poetry and sustenance and light, Jesus himself. I want to leave you with a prayer. And I, I, sort of torn about whether to do this or not, but it was a prayer that was written to sort of rethink how we talk about the Christ the King Sunday, to get you thinking differently about this idea of Jesus as King. And I tweaked a couple of words at the end that you might notice. Most gracious God, who in Jesus of Nazareth showed us an alternative to the kings, queens, and emperors of history, help us to revere and emulate Jesus' leadership, to love and to seek justice for all people. Help us to recognize the true grandeur and life-changing power based in loving you and all of our neighbors. Loving God with our brother Jesus, our sister spirit, and you. May we co-create a world, world, world ruled not through domination, but in your radical and all-powerful compassion and love.